0: Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. Um, it's a joy to continue and worship together as we open the Scriptures. Um, it's an honor to be able to do so. Again, my name's C.T. Eldridge. I uh, serve as the campus pastor at Woodside Lapeer. And uh, as I think about this church, as I think about your leadership, uh, my heart is filled with gratitude. Um, we are in Lapeer living out like so many of the other campuses Uh, the benefit of being connected to this broader community that is called Woodside Bible Church. About six years ago, there was a church called Maple Grove Christian Church in Lapeer. Uh, The pastor, Gary Gillum, who's still a part of our church, he's still a lay elder, um, planted the church in the early 90s, uh, but his tenure was ending. Uh, The church had been through some struggles and had shrunk, um, but Gary had a relationship with Doug Schmidt, and through the partnership with the other campuses, um, we have been able to keep that lighthouse for the gospel open. Um, so as I think about larger campuses with more resources like you guys, uh, truly, uh, I would not be able to do what I've been able to do over the last three years in Lapeer without you all. Um, we are trending toward uh, financial self-sufficiency. Uh, we've grown throughout, even through the pandemic, slowed us down. Uh, but we're getting closer and closer to being uh, self-sustaining financially. We're still, though, reliant upon you guys uh, and, and other campuses like you to stay open. Uh, so I wanna, uh, hopefully you guys can, can see in the flesh um, what uh, you guys are giving towards and praying towards as you're a part of uh, Woodside Bible Church and what we're trying to do throughout Southeast Michigan, so thank you. Um, I'm also incredibly thankful for your leadership. As I mentioned, Jim Dalkey, Alex, Tiffany, uh, John, Josh, Matt, Uh, Been just crucial partners for me um, and the rest of our staff at Woodside Lapeer. So, again, I could go on and on. Thank you guys so much, and uh, it's a joy to share from God's Word with you guys. Um, As Alex mentioned, uh, we're going through this short three week summer series called Spiritual Habits or Spiritual Rhythms. Uh, They're more classically referred to as spiritual disciplines. But I guess uh, the word habit and rhythm is cooler than the word discipline now, so we've sort of mixed it up. But we essentially mean the same sort of things. Um, Activities that God has ordained in His Word for us to be able to seek Him, for us to be able to grow closer to Him. So a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Jim led you guys uh, in the Scriptures related to the practice of fasting. Um, And then last week, if Alex did what Rob did, he talked about Scripture meditation. Is that right, Alex? I should have asked you. What did you talk about? <laughs> did you talk about spiritual rhythms? Spiritual direction. Spiritual direction. Okay, excuse me. Uh, so fasting, spiritual direction, and then today I'm going to talk about the spiritual ribbon rhythm or habit or discipline of prayer, uh, probably the most well-known uh, spiritual discipline, prayer. But I don't just want to talk about prayer. I want to connect it to the series that we did previously in the summer in May and in all of June. If you are here, you remember that we worked through the book of Genesis really through the lens of family and relationship. And what we saw throughout the book of Genesis, you remember we we first looked at Adam and Eve and then Cain and Abel and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers, and we studied the family dynamics. And what can we learn about Relationships through them. And what we saw in the book of Genesis is that there is a Jerry Springer level of family dysfunction even amongst God's people. Like I told the church in LaPierre, you may find yourself, if you read through the book of Genesis, you may find yourself all of a sudden chanting, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. I mean, literally, the Judah and Tamar story is a who's the real daddy drama. Not kidding. There is an embarrassing amount of family dysfunction even amongst God's people, even amongst us. And so that's what that series was about. What is God's purpose even in the midst of our relational brokenness? How does God work and how does God heal the fractures that occur amongst God's people and amongst our own families? And so what I wanted to do is combine this emphasis on prayer with what we just looked at in relational brokenness and bring them together through Psalm chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning, is Psalm chapter 4, King David praying in the midst of relational strife. So I'll read these words for us, and then we'll dive in. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. To the choirmaster with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In their book entitled Relationships, A Mess Worth Making... Authors Paul Tripp and Tim Lane begin their book with these words. They say, quote, Relationships are messy. Relationships are hurtful. We've never been in a relationship that hasn't disappointed us in some way. But God has created us for community, vertical community with God and horizontal community with God each other. We shouldn't run away from the messiness of community. We shouldn't avoid imperfect people, end quote. Relationships are messy. They're disappointing. We've never been in a relationship, they say, that hasn't disappointed us, and yet God created us for community. God put us in a church. He put us in a family. He's given us friends and coworkers. So you feel the rub here. This is our relational dilemma that we saw throughout the book of Genesis. On the one hand, relationships can be very painful. On the other hand, relationships are very necessary. We were made for them. Well, in Psalm chapter 4, David is feeling pain from people. And this isn't so much physical torture. As far as we know, his body is in good shape, but his spirit is broken. In verse 1, he speaks of experiencing distress. And in verse 8, we can infer that he's having trouble sleeping. He was so torn up inside that he couldn't rest. Does that ever happen to you? Has there ever been someone with whom you're so angry or someone about whom you're so anxious or someone with whom you're so disappointed that you can't sleep? Well, that's where David is, and that's where we all are in our own way. David is living in between the tension that relationships are very painful and they are very necessary, and we all live within this painful tension. So what are we going to do with our grief from other people? What are we going to do with our relational pain? Well, friends, the message of this psalm meets us right in the middle of this tension. Prayerful response transforms relational pain into peaceful rest. That's the main point that I'm drawing from Psalm 4. A prayerful response to those who've hurt us can transform relational pain into peaceful rest. So, first, I want to look at this transformation that happens within David. So, starting in verse 1. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. So this is where David is at, at the start. He's he's pleading with God. He speaks of his distress. Answer me. Give relief. Be gracious. Hear my prayer. So there seems to be this overall sense of desperation as David appeals to God for help. That's where David is. As we'll see, he's experiencing relational pain. But he prays. He cries out to God. Now look at the end of the psalm. Look at verse 8. Look at the transformation that's happened within David's soul. He says, "...in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety." So, David is transformed from relational pain into peaceful rest. And, friends, this is a demonstration of God's victory over the evil one because Satan would destroy our trust in God. He would steal our peace from God. And so, for us to simply lay down at night and sleep, for us to shut our eyes and close off our minds, this is a way of us saying, God is my safety. God is my peace. So you see this transformation. Prayer transforms relational pain in verse 1 into peaceful rest in verse 8. Now that's the start and the finish, but what happens in between? What is prayer doing that helps David work towards this transformation? Well, you remember our main point. Prayerful response transforms relational pain into peaceful rest. David's prayer in verse 1 energizes his response to those who've hurt him. So David isn't simply going to pray about his relational problems. David also speaks to those who have caused his relational problems, his sleepless distress. He responds to them, and it's this prayerful response that transforms relational pain into peaceful rest. And throughout the psalm, we see three different types of people that David responds to. First, he responds to backstabbers. Secondly, he responds to hotheads. And third, he responds to pessimists. Backstabbers, hotheads, and pessimists. That's who's caused David's pain, and that's who he is going to prayerfully respond to. So first, responding to backstabbers, to backstabbers. Look at verse 2 again. David goes from praying to God in verse 1 to now speaking to those who've hurt him in verse 2. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So the men that David addresses here, they knew something of David's honor. They knew something of his glory and his kingdom. They must have been close to him in some way. They must have been a part of his kingdom or maybe even on his leadership team. But these men turned the king's glory into shame. And they betray their commitment to David. They stab him in the back, seeking after lies and loving vanity. And notice David's prayerful response to these men. He says to them, how long? How long are you going to do this? So David doesn't blow up on them. He doesn't berate them with verbal assaults. He simply puts it to them, how long? When are you going to wake up from this insanity? You remember when Jesus was betrayed? Towards the end of his life, he had just finished praying in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is there speaking with His disciples. And all of a sudden, this mass of Roman soldiers appears in order to arrest Jesus. And these soldiers are led by Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples. Judas walks up to Jesus and kisses Him. You remember that Judas had made this plan with the Roman soldiers that the one he kisses is him. And Judas responds to this backstabber like this. This is Luke chapter 22, verse 48. Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So Jesus' response here, it reminds me of what David says in Psalm 4, because each man has this level-headed steadiness in their response to betrayal and backstabbing. Neither one of them responds with uncontrollable rage and verbal violence. Instead, these men of prayer respond with a question. How long? Would you do this? Would you betray me like this? That's what a prayerful response to backstabbing looks like. Then in verse 3, David continues speaking to these backstabbers. He says to them, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. In other words, David says, Backstabbers, you may have betrayed me, but God is committed to me. I may not have a relationship with you anymore, but I do have a relationship with the Lord. You may not answer when I call, but God answers When I call to him. So we can sense David's confidence starting to rise, can't we? David presses into and he vocalizes the supremacy of his relationship with God. Because the truth is, we may lose every relationship we have. Theoretically, it could happen, everyone could betray us. But the Lord has set us apart for himself. And how wonderfully true this is for us who are in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle says that we are sanctified in Christ. We are set apart in Christ Jesus. So how does David engage backstabbers? He prayerfully responds with a humble but earnest question. How long would you betray me? And he confidently asserts God's commitment to him. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. King David was betrayed by Absalom, his son. David was also betrayed by Ahithophel, one of his close advisors. And King Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. But what about you? Who's turned on you in betrayal? Who's stabbed you in the back? Maybe it was a business partner who cheated you. Maybe it was a spouse who cheated on you. Maybe it was a pastor or a Christian friend who misled you. Sadly, this kind of experience is all too common. So the question isn't, will we be betrayed? The question is, How will we respond when we are betrayed? How have you responded? Maybe your response doesn't sound exactly the same as David's does in these couple of verses, but what must be true is that our response, like David, is forged through the process of prayer. Before David speaks to his betrayer in verse 2, he speaks to God in verse 1 answer me, give me relief, be gracious, hear my prayer. So church, let's let the pain of betrayal drive us to God so that we can then respond to our betrayer in a way that honors God and allows us to lay down our heads at night and sleep in peace. A prayerful response transforms relational pain into peaceful rest including how we respond to backstabbers. But here's the next group that David addresses, responding to hotheads, responding to backstabbers, responding to hotheads. So look again at verses four and five. David says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So if the backstabbers of verses 2 and 3 have lost their commitment to David, then the hotheads of verses 4 and 5 are overcommitted to David. And it's their impulsive actions and words that stress David out. And so he tells them, be angry. There's nothing wrong with being angry necessarily, but slow down, cool down ponder these things in your heart on your bed before you act or speak out of anger sit and let your anger be guided by your trust in the lord that's david's prayerfully produced response to these zealous hotheads and apparently these same kinds of people exist in the church because in the new testament in james chapter 1 verse 19 James says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So James says, or James doesn't say, don't be angry. Same for David. David, in fact, says, be angry. But let there be a slowness to your anger. Sit with your anger so that it's guided, so that there's a godly focus to it. And here again, we can think about the arrest of Jesus. When the Roman soldier laid hands on Jesus to arrest him, Peter, Jesus' chief disciple, pulls out a dagger and goes for one of the soldier's throats. I don't feel like we talk about that a whole lot, but Peter tried to kill a dude. Now, thankfully, the soldier flinches and Peter only cuts off his ear But then Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, no more of this. Physical violence and aggression is not the way of the kingdom. But wait, Jesus, are you not angry that you're being arrested? Shouldn't we be angry that the Son of God is being arrested and will eventually be crucified? Shouldn't Peter be angry? Well, of course he should. On the one hand, for Jesus to be treated like this is the height of injustice. But you see, there's a godly focus to Jesus' anger. In his anger, Jesus doesn't erupt in violence, as did Peter, the hothead. Instead, listen to what Jesus says as he continues. This is Matthew 26, verses 52 through 54. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? He would at once. Send me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. So you see, I think Jesus is angry. But His anger is focused on the mission God has given Him. His mission to fulfill the Scriptures through his death and resurrection. Jesus trusts, this is where my anger needs to be expressed, the defeat of the evil one through the cross. Not these puny soldiers. Be angry, but do not sin. Sit with your anger. Trust the Lord. This is a prayerful response to hotheads. David is hurt by their impulsiveness, but he prayerfully corrects them towards strength and wisdom. We are living in what some have called the age of rage. Social discourse, whether it's talking heads on the news, speeches from politicians or chants from protesters, and certainly posts on social media. Our social discourse has been infused with anger. And writing on this topic, pastor and professor Ed Stetzer says this, quote, he says, We have entered a new age, one defined by polarization and tribalism, amplified by new technology and online platforms. So when you combine the polarization and tribalism with the new technology and social media, what you get is a lot of sharp, intense, hurtful speech, motivated by anger, At the other side. And the worst part is that we as Christians have by and large been drugged right along into the rage fest. The hotheads around us, the zealots around us, whether they're fired up about whatever political issue or they're zealous about whatever cultural situation, we have allowed the hotheads in our lives to drag us into the fury, and perhaps it's because we haven't prayed. Jesus, a man of prayer, when he faces an infuriating situation, the most infuriating situation, there's nothing more infuriating than that the Son of God would be arrested and murdered. Nothing is worth getting mad about more than that. And yet, Jesus responds very differently than did the hot-headed, zealous Peter. And so too for King Jesus. I'm sorry, so too for King David. David doesn't tell these hotheads that it's wrong to be angry necessarily. But because he's been in prayer, he's able to resist their furor and offer a wise and calming response. And so too it must be for us. Church, let's not lament the age of rage in God's providence. We are where we are and we are when we are. This is where He's put us, and this is when He's put us. But He's put us here to make a difference. And He's put us here to be different. And if that's to be the case, we must be men and women of prayer. Responding to backstabbers, responding to hotheads, and finally, responding to pessimists. Responding to pessimists. So look once more at verses 6 and 7. David writes, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? So David's been dragged down by betrayal. He's been disturbed by zealous aggression. But this third group hurts David with their pessimism. These people are defeatists, they've given up. And their lack of faith sounds like this Who will show us some good? The implication seems to be No one. We're lost. We're hopeless. And interestingly, David doesn't respond to these pessimists directly. He doesn't speak to them as he did the backstabbers and the hotheads. He doesn't confront their doubt head on. Instead, he again prays. Verses 6 and 7. Perhaps he prayed this in their presence and out loud. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than these pessimists have when their grain and wine abound. So pessimism is a dark and despairing attitude, but David says here that there is light in God's face, and from this light, there is a joy that enters into the hearts of those who behold Him, more joy than what comes from a mass of material blessings. Now, why does this joy-giving light come from the Lord's face? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 15 says, "In the light of the king's face, there is life." So what is it about the face that gives light and life? Well I read this about faces re- recently. The author said this quote: "When we speak to someone, we don't look at and address his or her kneecaps. We don't look at and address his or her feet, or back or stomach." We address the person to his or her face. The face is the relational gate into a person's mind and heart. The face is a person's relational gate. In other words, it's through our faces where we really connect. Through facing each other is where relationship happens. So for example, this is why we have the furniture in this room arranged the way that we do because We as worship leaders want to connect with you. I'm trying to lead you in the Word. Ryan and his team are leading us in song. And in order to lead you, we need to be relationally connected with you. So we have all of you face us. Like imagine me trying to preach with my back turned toward you. It is definitely hard for me to preach. I imagine that it is not easy for you to listen because we're not connected, because we're not facing each other. So David's prayer is for the pessimistic person to once again experience the warmth and light and joy of relationship with God. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. In Matthew chapter 17 and in Luke chapter 9, it tells the story of Jesus' transfiguration. This is a scene in which Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on top of a mountain to pray And as Jesus was praying, it's reported that his face was transfigured. It began to shine like the sun and became dazzling bright. And there's much significance to this scene, but if nothing else, we can say that what that scene means is that in Jesus Christ, the light of the Lord's face has shone upon us. We have relationship. We have connection with the Heavenly Father through Jesus. In His face, there's this concentrated brightness that speaks of God's divine presence. And this face shines on us, bringing joy to our hearts, more joy than when our grain and wine abound, more joy than when we receive whatever material blessing, more joy than when we achieve whatever political victory. Friends, nothing overcomes a pessimistic view of life and the world like the gospel of Jesus. And this is the gospel, friends. This is the good news. That through Jesus, through the dark day of His gruesome death, He worked to bring us back into the brightness of resurrection joy. And so I call on you. Trust in Jesus. His face is turned toward you. No matter how deep in despair you may be, he welcomes you into his presence. But this is how David responds to the pessimists in his life. He responds not with rebuke, as he did the backstabbers. He responds not with correction, as he did the hotheads, but he responds with more prayer and with a joyful declaration of his confidence in God. Okay, honest story, I'm not exaggerating. Numerous times over the last year and a half since President Biden was elected, numerous times, I've heard Christians say something like, oh, our country, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, this is the end. We're doomed. It's over. Who will show us some good? It's as if they're quoting Psalm 4, verse 6. You know, just responses really marked by pessimism. Now listen, I'm not trying to say that we got to walk around all happy happy joy joy, that we got to be all happy clappy all the time and just have this superficial cheeriness. But I am saying that a fundamentally pessimistic view of life and the world is contrary to the joyful confidence that we should have in the gospel. Church in one sense, I don't care what happens in this country politically because at the end of the grave, at the end of the day, Jesus grave is still empty. At the end of the day, His Holy Spirit is still poured out amongst us. And that's what gives me hope. Not the rise and fall of some puny politicians, all of whom are going to be swept into the ash bin of eternity and be forgotten by our great-grandchildren. Like, seriously, they're going to struggle to even remember these guys' names. And yet, we're in a fuss. Friends, we are a part of a kingdom that knows no end. Our king sits on a throne that will not be shaken. But my fear is that we've given in to the pessimism. Because unlike David, we're not people of prayer. Instead of hearing the pessimism and then seeking God, we hear the pessimism and then join it. But brothers and sisters, it should not be so. We have a rock solid, living hope in Christ. Let's live like it. Let's pray like it. Let's respond to pessimists like it. Man, isn't it true? Relationships are messy. The backstabbers, hotheads, pessimists, many others, they make for some messy relationships. And like David, the messiness and pain of relationships can keep us from sleep. It can steal our security in God. It can steal our joy in God. And yet in this psalm, David shows us a path forward. A prayerful response transforms relational pain into peaceful rest. By prayerfully responding to those who've hurt us, we can be at peace again. Backstabbers, hotheads, pessimists, they can all crush our spirits They can all rob us of sleep, but ignoring the pain, hiding from tough relationships, none of that pleases God. None of it leads us into the godly flourishing that we were meant for. Rather, moving toward God through prayer will help us to move toward our painful relationships in a God-honoring and helpful way. I pray it would be so for you and for my church in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, let's stand as we prepare to respond to God's word by singing praise to him once again, and I'll pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning humbled as we once again reflect on so much of the relational tension, relational brokenness in our lives. We're humbled, Father, to see the mess that has been made in our families, in our church, in our nation, in our world. Father, we're also humbled because we, each one of us, has contributed to the mess. And so, Father, we come before you and ask for your mercy. Would you in Christ renew us? Would you in Christ lead us towards repentant humility so that we could seek you, so that we could enter the world and be agents of reconciliation, be the peacemakers that you've called us to be? So, Father, I pray that right now you would bring to mind for each one of us whatever relationship that you're calling us to engage in. With a spouse, with a child, with a neighbor, with a friend, with a co-worker, with a fellow church member. Where are you calling us to pursue healing? Where are you calling us to pursue reconciliation? Bring those faces to our mind. And God, may we from now forward be marked by prayer as we engage in this relational struggle, whatever it may be. And God, we pray for brokenness and dysfunction that may have existed for many generations, brokenness and dysfunction that may have existed in our own lives for decades. We pray for you to do the impossible. We pray for you to move the mountain of relational fractures that exist in our lives. God, only you can do it. And we seek you for it by the grace of Christ and in his name.